The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and welcome to a special episode of Exploring Different Brains. In this first year in review episode, we are going to hear from a handful of the amazing neurodivergent self-advocates we've had the privilege of speaking with. Let's start off with Jude Morrow. What is one piece of advice you would have for an autistic individual who is feeling a little bit down about things in general? The first thing I would say is you have gifts and talents, whether you realize it or not yet, where, like me, you probably lived a life where you were told so many things that ultimately were false, but they appeared true to you. Like you can't communicate properly. You won't have a job. You won't have successes in life because you have X, Y, and Z amount of deficits. And I just want to tell you now that that's not true, where you do have talents, you do have gifts. And I suppose after having had a lifetime of having to suppress these to please others, it's time for you to take control to make that conscious effort, to showcase what you're good at, to follow the passion that you have, to follow that dream that you have. And whenever you live life on your own terms and take control, that's when good things happen because nobody's going to take control of your life on your behalf unless you allow them. So I would just get out there and do what you want to do for yourself. Tara Lerman, what is one thing you wished everyone knew about Tourette's syndrome and other tick disorders? I wish people knew that, you know, not everyone with Tourette's is what you see in the media, what you see kind of on TV. I think there's a lot of jokes around it. Um, but, you know, to those of us who have it, it's, it's you know, it, it can be funny when we're, when we're making fun of ourselves, but it's not, you know, it's not something to laugh at. And it, it is a serious condition. Um, some people have uh, kind of different ticks, more severe ticks. Some people have less severe ticks. Um, you know, there's no one size fits all. So, you know, you might have a friend with Tourette's, but that's, you know, you might meet another person who doesn't have Tourette's. So, um, you know, really just knowing that uh, it's a complex disorder, um, but also, you know, it, it can give give people who have it um, really interesting kind of attributes as well. I would say I'm more creative because of it. I, I have more empathy because of it. Um, so, you know, for as, as many frustrations as there are, there's also kind of uh, little, you know, really good things about it too. Tom Oliver. I get a lot of questions about parenting and I, I do, I will say before I answer it that I do get a lot of uh, concerning propositions to the effect that, uh, you know, you're obviously cured of autism. How can I cure my son or daughter? And to that, I say, yeah, there's, there's, you've mixed up the presupposition there. Um, yeah, there's no cure for autism. You wouldn't want to cure it. Um, it's, it's a way of life. It's, it's who you are as a person, and, and there's no cure, nor should there be. Um, it's, it's a strength. It's, it's not. Um, purely a disability like any person there are strengths and weaknesses um, I wouldn't take my autism back for a second um, I also get a lot of questions around um, you know where the line is between pushing an autistic person out of their comfort zone they obviously typically love structure and routine um, they 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 
in, in light of having um, special interests, they tend to um, gravitate towards the same thing over and over again. Uh, they, it's, it becomes their way of life. And parents often think that they ought to try and push them out of their comfort zone. But at the same time, uh, you don't want to um, push them too far out of their comfort zone to the point where they're having, you know, anxiety-induced comas, you know, <laughs> meltdowns uh, if they can't cope. And so uh, it, is, it is a fine line and, and I'm not a parent myself. Um, and so I, I can only sympathise. But I would say um, it's important. I think it's important to listen to the autistic person. Um, and I think I, I will. I will say, and I'm really struggling with this open-ended question, so I apologise. But I will say um, I will. I will touch upon the correlation between employment and the justice system. Um, and I think it's it's it would be unwise of me to unwise of anybody to think that um, the two are mutually exclusive um, because um, I think the studies show that merely twenty percent of autistic people are currently employed uh, which is which is baffling to me because they tend to be good at one thing they tend to be very specialized and so if they can just go into that area you know I talked about Darius earlier if he could be employed by that um, by that train station, uh, why not? He, he's doing a perfect job, um, but because he has a criminal record, he, he can't he can't be employed. And and so I think um, we ought to rethink the way we employ people. I think we ought to refine down what actually matters in an employment setting, uh, because in the way, in terms of the way in which it, it affects the criminal justice system. Um, if you don't have a vocation, you're more susceptible to um, getting in touch with the wrong crowd. Um, and because autistic people tend to mask around, um, mask other people's behaviours, it's all the more important that they're surrounded by people who are of good influence, um, people that they can relate to, so potentially or preferably other autistic neurodiverse people. Ryan Lundy, what is one thing that you wish that everyone knew about nonverbal learning disorder? One thing is, I wish that there would be more of an acceptance of it. Um, people have not heard of it, meaning uh, people think it's really, um, you're, you're nonverbal, you're not allowed to speak, you can't speak. So it's like a misconception of it. So I really want people to not take that misconception and really look into what exactly what it is and accept it for who it is and not try to say, oh, it's something else, but it's that's what it is. And remind our audience again, a brief definition of what nonverbal learning disability is. So nonverbal learning disability uh, is, you cannot read uh, social cues very well. Um, for me, it was jokes. Uh, for me, it was kind of communication back and forth with texting and messaging over the internet, reading those verbal, nonverbal cues, um, low gross motor tone, 
you will have both gross motor tone. So the motor tone, gross motor tone, sometimes it's visual, so you cannot see, um, uh, you know, deprivation. Um, um, so seeing and... But when you're speaking, when you're having a conversation on just the yeah. speech aspects... Yes, reading body language too. Yeah, okay. So right. How a person's feeling, their emotions, what they're trying to convey, when oh. to pause, when to interject, those kinds of things. Ben Boudreau, tell us about the importance of building a routine for these Ooh. individuals. Oh, I could definitely speak for this. <laughs> oh, Ben. Oh, well, I definitely say routines are so important for our community. Uh, well, I could say pretty much like simple question I get asked by a few people is, What's your typical day like? Well, get up, you know, I'm get up around, try and set my alarm for six, six thirty, get up, go exercise. That's the first thing I'm going to do right when I wake up. Then I'm going to do is eat my breakfast and clean up. And then either I'm going to teach or catch up on research and then, you know, do my normal like lunch and then catch up on other things. And then I'm back home by 6, 6.30. And then, you know, I always say I'm coming old man in my body as I'm watching the news and then I'm going to bed at nine o'clock. There's nothing wrong with, you know, you're, you hear, oh, I'm 22. I should be going out partying. No. Well, I'm 29 years old. I go to bed at nine o'clock. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, I think, you know, every so often maybe having a, um, you know, deviate of having a little bit of social gatherings, that's fine. But, you know, I find that if you keep your routine going and rhythm going, then you'll be fine. Like, you know, that's the one thing I've noticed with my success is if I keep my routine going, you know, that's how I feel mentally happy because then I feel like, oh, I'm not behind on something or, you know, if, oh, I didn't exercise that day. Well, I, I exercise every day, even if it's like 30 minutes, that's the bare minimum I always set myself. So if you set, you know, like realistic goals for yourself, then it'll help, you know, in the long run. Dr. James Williams, what is one piece of advice you'd like to give to an autistic person in our audience who wants to find a career? To be patient and intentional. For uh, a lot of us, finding work is a, is a challenging endeavor in and of itself. Um, but it's also not one that happens fast. Uh, the average uh, individual who's applying for full-time employment, it takes six to nine months to find a job. Uh, and people with, with, with on the autism spectrum neurodiversity are no different. So being patient is a big part of it, but then also being intentional and, and treating the job process as an active process, right? There's a lot of effort that you're going to have to put into it, following up with employers, um, you know, uh, doing applications, um, you know, doing interviews, all of those pieces. And the more patient you are to persist and the more active you are to make it be successful and get to that end goal, um, the better off you'll be. So that's my best advice. Jilika Kumar, why don't you share with our audience some of the tools that you have found very helpful for yourself for ADHD? Yeah, that is a great, great question and something that um, you know, I've sort of ex experienced and struggled with for a lot of my life, you know, and a lot of times because my brother's, you know, condition was, you know, he's on the spectrum and he's a non-speaking individual, just being around, you know, him and 
his story and how that influenced, you know, my own neurodiversity story and learning about that. Um, it's, it's, it's been, you know, really great. I think in terms of one of some of the things that some of the tools that have helped me, I would say, you know, <laughs> it's interesting because I have sort of built mechanisms around me to help, you know, be on top of things. I think, especially as responsibility grows and pressure grows, having, you know, 500 like to-do lists, sticky notes, whiteboards, you know, all around me, kind of keeping me, uh, you know, on, on top of everything and making sure, uh, I mean, I still, you know, some things fall through and sometimes it's hard to sort of, um, you know, especially be in person. Sometimes it's it's challenging uh, with, you know, not wanting to seem, you know, like I'm not paying attention or might be like what other, you know, people see as rude, but really just trying to figure out how to process things and, you know, not necessarily uh, not paying attention in any way. But um, yeah, it's I, I think the mechanisms and tools um, to sort of stay focused, um, you know, take decompression break, express myself. I think now that there's a lot more talk about neurodiversity, it's a lot easier to like say, you know, hey, I, I need, you know, a few moments. It's it's not you. It's just I need, you know, some decompression time and then I'll come back to this. Um, it's 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 been a lot more um you know intuitive it's more easy to communicate with others especially those in the community who understand so yeah developing those communication techniques as well as tracking techniques have been really helpful to kind of stay on top of things um and i will say the remote world with you know zoom has kept it so much easier uh you know things like even just giving eye contact and you know things like that where in person and you know different kind of signals in the room and there's so many things we've learned about that remote work has helped with so that's been helpful for me as well samantha salver can you tell us a little bit about your own dyslexia yeah um the long story short. <laughs> Make it a long story. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I um, I didn't speak until I was three. And I'm the youngest of three girls. So my mom and dad, I was very communicative. Facial expressions, noises, grunts, you know, pulling people the way I wanted to. But I didn't talk till I was three. And it wasn't until my grandfather told my mom that hey, you might want to maybe get some testing done. There may or may not be something there. So over the next three years, I had a handful of IQ testing and um, learning disability testing. And I found out when I was in third grade that I was dyslexic. And it made a lot of sense. I wasn't able to read yet. Um, my writing was very difficult. Um, and I avoided reading and writing at all costs. Like, I wouldn't, I couldn't. And then um, once I had the diagnosis, my mom was able to find me tutors who specialized in this and could help me relearn things. So in fifth grade, I left school for a couple of months and did Lyndon Mood Bell, where I relearned how to read um, instead of phonetically, it was more vision. Uh, visual, and they changed my life. I learned how to read when I was in fifth grade. And it was, I was still never on grade level. I'm definitely not on grade level now. <laughs> but uh, but it caught me up so that I could keep up with school with the right accommodations. And throughout, since I was diagnosed, I've had accommodations, extended time on testing, 
um, note takers, um, spelling, not always counting. And that followed me from middle school through bachelor, uh, associates, bachelors, and masters. Um, I didn't know if I'd be able to finish school or find a, find a, a career that would highlight my strengths. And I had four majors. I went to five universities and it wasn't until I took a social work class where I'm like, wow, this all makes sense. The first class I've ever taken that everything makes sense. And here I am now doing what I love to do, what I know is life-changing for the individuals that receive the help. Be Moise, as a parenting coach, one of your jobs, what is the one thing that you think is the most important advice you give if you had to pick one thing? I am going to sound like a broken record um, because I say this every time I'm, I, I'm, I am asked this question, I answer it the exact same way. And it is acceptance. Once you accept the child that you have, it is a game changer. Once you recognize that this is what you have, this is who you have, this is the child that you have, this is the learning style that they have. Once you accept it, all the pieces just come together. I think the reason I was able to thrive as much as I could with ADHD, my mom just accepted my quirkiness and just really, she, I think she made excuses for it. Like, oh, that's just Beatrice. Um, that's just Beatrice. So I really never felt like it was a bad thing. It was just, yeah, that's just who I am. So I've taken the same approach with my children. And the number one advice I think I try to drill into all of my clients' head is, the acceptance piece is what children are looking for because once they know you accept them for who they are and how they are, everything else is cake. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. 